Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. I'm delighted that my guest for this episode is Frank Rose. Uh, Frank um, has done many, many things and continues to evolve his career uh, from being a journalist writing for Wired, being an author of quite a few books, being a specialist in storytelling and the media industry in Hollywood. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation where we're going to talk about the future. And as I do with uh, all my guests, I like them to just give us a kind of a minute uh, bio resume of you know their career to date. So I'm going to ask Frank if he could take us through a little bit of his highlights in terms of what got him here today. Thanks, Ed. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so um, yeah, it's kind of funny. I started out as a journalist in the 70s writing for the Village Voice. I grew up in Virginia and I went to Washington and Lee and then I came to New York shortly after that and I ended up writing about uh, you know rock music in the in the punk era at CBGB and you know places like uh, CBGB of course, Max's Kansas City, bands like Television and Talking Heads and Patti Smith Group and so forth. It was uh, actually one of the one of the very best times to be in New York. From there, I ended up writing about uh, various things, uh, sort of the entertainment industry, the uh, technology industry, in particular the, the you know sort of personal computer revolution of the 80s. I did a book about Apple called uh, West of Eden, which was essentially a look at what happened when Steve Jobs hired John Scully and then three years later Scully fired him. It was kind of a mistake. So, uh, you know, and then I, I wrote for Premiere for a couple of years, which is no longer around in the U.S. The French original is actually still here and still great. But uh, for a few years, it was a really terrific magazine. It was one of the first magazines that was uh, both a trade magazine and a consumer magazine. So if you were really interested in movies, whether you worked in the industry or not, uh, it was sort of a magazine for you. Um, after a while, I, I did another book. I wrote for Fortune for a couple of years, uh, sort of on the on the business of Hollywood, and then I ended up at Wired. Uh, I was at Wired magazine for ten years, sort of putting all of this together in a way, writing about media and technology. At the end of which, I wrote a book called The Art of Immersion, which sort of set me on an entirely different course. I'm now at Columbia, where I lead an executive education program called Strategic Storytelling, and I'm a member of the Digital Storytelling Lab there. Great, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so, what might be? I mean, you may or may not be able to answer this, but you know, the, this. Let's start off with, the, with the, this cultural future idea, where um, you're in New York and CBGBs is the place, and there's this whole new movement. And do you think this was, was this about, this was definitely a shift, right? We were talking about a cultural shift. We're talking about a new future. Um, 
How do you think the participants, uh, the protagonists in that world, saw themselves? What were they pushing against? What are they? What future were they trying to create? What yeah. were they looking for? Absolutely. No, that 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 was that was the best part. They were pushing against this, uh, you know, idea of rock and roll as this kind of bloated, uh, you know, operatic uh, thing. That uh, you know, you had groups like uh, you know Yes and Electric Light Orchestra and so forth, where you know literally the the you'd go to Madison Square Garden and the pianist would be rolling upside down in some kind of cage. I mean, it was unbelievable, and it was really stupid. And uh, what was great about uh, what was great about the CBGB scene and and the Ramones really epitomized this was you know just none of that just get rid of it all, you don't even have to play or know how to play, just, you know, three chords and, uh, and, and you're on. And that was, uh, that was a real revelation, it was stripping, you know, rock back to its essence. And uh, there were a wide range of groups, they were all kind of different from one another, but uh, essentially, that's what it was about. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I was just um, I was just watching a documentary um, that is I haven't even finished it yet, but it was it was uh, two and a half hours long, and it was only covering six years of Brian Eno's life. <laughs> right. And uh, right. so, and, and what was interesting there was it was very very similar. What you had Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You had these right. classically trained British musicians. And uh, they were doing rock music, and right. Eno, who you know, some people today would say is a complete music nerd, but actually at the time was nothing of the sort. He re- he he was, you know, he would do, always do interviews with journalists, and he would say he can't play music, he can't read it, and he doesn't know anything about it. And this caused apparently a lot of uh, contention amongst the kind of the leaders and the leading bands in the music industry. Thinking, well, this guy hasn't become a maestro. <laughs> right, and and right. What, what right does he have after you know a, a few years of doing this to claim the headlines? And um, you know they were really about you know this was Roxy music, yeah. taking a very different approach to what music could be and what a band could be. Yeah, exactly. And then you know taking it even uh, you know further after he left Roxy music, one of the you know when you do this for a while you kind of get articles that you've done that are really your favorites. And one of my very favorites is, it's probably been all downhill since, but in 1977, I did uh, an interview, a series of interviews with Eno in, uh, in London. I was there to actually do a piece for Rolling Stone on the Bee Gees, whom I frankly wasn't all that interested in, but they were about to do, uh, you know, the, the soundtrack for Saturday Night Live. Uh, and so Night Fever. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they were about to do the soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever, and uh, you know, one of them was in London, one of them was in the Isle of Man, where uh, they lived as tax exiles at the time, and one was outside Paris at the uh, the place that Elton John later immortalized as the Honky Chateau, and. Uh, so it was kind of fun. It was a lot of fun, actually. And but the best thing about it was I hung out in London for a while, and I connected with Eno, and I ended up doing four consecutive interviews with him at his. Um, he lived at the time in this modest flat in Maida Vale in Northwest London, and 
you know, we just talked. One of the favorite things he said to me was that, you know, when he gave interviews, he, he didn't really pay any attention to the questions that he was asked. You know, this is when he was on tour. He would give interviews and he would just, you know, when one interview was over, he would, uh, and the next one started, because they were all back to back and you'd do it for, you know, the better part of the day, he would just pick up on the same subject and continue talking as if he were talking to the same person. And, uh, you know, so with me, it was the same person, and, and uh, that's kind of what we did. It was, uh, you know, it was really about, what he was talking about was really his approach to music and at that point was kind of very anti-Roxy music and uh, you know he sort of drew this diagram of of uh, you know a traditional uh, you know rock band and a traditional orchestra and how you know they both had stars and he said something about star in German means stiff and uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned um, uh, I, I mentioned Roxy Music, and he said, you know, that's the problem. And uh, what he was into at the time was, uh, you know, essentially a a sort of algorithmic approach to music. I think you would call it now. Uh, you know, where you sort of set things in motion and see what happens. Sort of uh, a randomizer. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It was sort of very John Cage-like. Yeah. And um, uh, but anyway, it was uh, it was great fun. So so we you know we there was the punk there was a positive punk revolution which was kind of you know another well certainly as a teenager growing up in London and I was kind of in the middle of it mm -hmm. a little bit perhaps a little too young to really experience it, but it was certainly going on around me. It seemed that it was a cultural, there was a disaffected youth aspect to it. Um, really, it was a little bit kind of, it, although it was the opposite of the 60s in terms mm -hmm. of kind of like the hippie revolution, it was more of a angst-driven, there's no future, the Sex Pistols kind of famously right. declared there was no future as right. far as they were concerned. Right. And this was kind of the, this nihilistic kind of angst-driven, um, and there, I think there, there um, and with McLaren, I think that whole thing was, was shock and awe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, to yeah. hear to sure. hear a band say the F word right. on television in the seventies was unheard of. And, right. and it got front page tabloid stories and they knew what they were doing. And, <laughs> and I think what they and I, and I think what they saw as a society and a system open to manipulation. Uh -huh. And yeah. the client's genius was to literally exploit that. Right, right. So so we had that interesting thing and then, you know, and, and you, this is really what I think is interesting from your background is Suddenly, we had technology. We had sort of had technology come along, mm -hmm. um, and, and technology offered a future, suggested a future. Right. And right. we were off on a we were off on a journey. You know, we suddenly heard about things like Moore's law, and we knew that what the computer we had today wouldn't be the computer we'd have next year. And there was. A world of expectation. It was kind of in the me to me the sort of the world of Wired a little bit. Yeah. The, the world that Wired wanted to wanted to <clears throat> exclaim and proclaim. Yeah, exactly. And I guess you know, looking back on it, I hadn't quite thought of it in these terms. But 
you know, that's probably at some level why in the early 80s I ended up, you know, writing less about music and started turning my attention toward technology. And, uh, you know, for for a while there, I was writing for Esquire uh, several years, and at first I wrote mainly about, uh, you know, sort of weird subcultures, youth subcultures in particular. I, I wrote about Christian surfers in Southern California. I wrote a long piece about the Pentagon, which uh, confounded the Pentagonese because they were used to people coming in and wanting to know how many light bulbs they had and how many miles of corridors and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I had a I had an entirely different approach. And in a way, it, it, it didn't even matter to me, uh, you know, like there were certain types of people I wanted to talk to, but the exact person didn't matter to me, and uh, you know, until I got to, to know them at least. And that really um, puzzled them. But, but, you know, what happened ultimately was I got kind of swept up in, the, in, in what eventually became known as the personal computer revolution. And it was, you know, the beginning of Silicon Valley, uh, the beginnings of Apple. Um, and it was, uh, it was fascinating, but I was always interested less in the technology itself than in the people who were doing it. I've always kind of taken an anthropological approach, and uh, you know, Apple at that point, in say in the early to mid '80s, was kind of a perfect petri dish because it embodied so many contradictions, uh, you know, between the, who they were as hobbyists, where they wanted to go. And Apple was this kind of remarkable petri dish, and. My book had the misfortune to come out just as, uh, you know, John Scully did his book. And Scully at the time was considered kind of a hero, uh, you know, after he'd gotten rid of jobs and precisely because he'd gotten rid of jobs. A hero you know, by Wall Street? By Wall Street in particular, but yeah. by, uh, you know, the Valley in general and certainly the, you know, the, the VC community. They all had this idea that Steve Jobs was this kind of crazy person who, uh, you know, was going to lead them to ruin if they, you know, paid much attention to him. And, uh, you know, what happened, of course, instead, and I pretty much, uh, uh, you, you know, suspected that this was exactly what was going to happen, was that Scully led them, you know, to a path of ruin. He didn't have a clue what he was doing or what he was talking about. And, uh, you know, most of the executives he appointed were, uh, you know, venal and even more clueless. And, uh, you know, after Scully left, it became even worse. Uh, you know, they went through two or three CEOs in a, in a couple of years, and by the time Jobs came back, uh, you know, the, the, the CFO of the company was saying he didn't know if, publicly was saying he didn't know if it was going to survive or not. Uh, so, and we all know what happened after that. So, uh, you know, that was a, uh, that was a real educational experience for me and I think for a lot of people. Um, but, uh, but I think that lesson tends to be lost all too easily. So, you know, what, what's, in, what's interesting, if, if, you, if you looked at it as an evolution of American business, as you sort of saw, I mean, being very simplistic here and mm -hmm. missing tons of sectors, but if you look at the sort of the 
post Second World War, we had this opportunity of globalization, industrialization, and it was mainly about standardization. Mm-hmm. You made Coca Cola the same way right. everywhere. Right. You made a Big Mac the same way everywhere. There was no real future visioning going on. It was how can we scale up this thing, get the logistics, the supply chain, get the branding right, get ubiquity right. That was really what the model was. Suddenly, these visionaries came along and talking Gates and Jobs and mm-hmm. said, there's this thing called technology. It's going to change our lives. And it wasn't about, yes, there was standardization, we're going to make a PC or we're going to make a piece of software that has quality and it's going to be dependable and reliable and each piece of software is going to be the same. But it's just a beginning. Yeah, It's a 1.0 and we're going to have multiple 1.0, release 1.1. That was a new vernacular. That was seemed to be a new language. Right. And these people had to be different, right? Because... We talk, in my last podcast where I was talking to the, the, another planner, Mark Pollard, who is an Australian, he was commenting on American corporate culture, and American corporate culture, as you just said, doesn't want people like Steve Jobs. Right. Because they right. mess with the predictability. Right. right. So now you've got tech revolution, and while you're saying, oh, I only was interested in the people, maybe you're interested in the people because they were very different. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was, I've was i always been interested in the people anyway, because they're, the, they're kind of the wild card, you know. Even even the supposedly predictable ones are kind of the wild card. And, uh, uh, but but what, was, um, what was different about Apple, I think, well, if you look at, you know, the reason that Steve Jobs brought John Scully in in the first place, Scully was a, you know, top executive at PepsiCo. And PepsiCo was, uh, you know, one of the, especially at the time, one of the very top, uh, you know, consumer marketing companies, what's now called fast-moving consumer goods. And Jobs had this idea, which was actually kind of potty, that you could apply that, uh, you know, mode to uh, mode of thinking to, you know, personal computers, and. Uh, you know, beyond that, he thought that, uh, you know, people like Scully had a real understanding of consumers and how they thought and, you know, and, and above all of marketing, so how to reach these people. So the whole, like, the whole thing was flawed to begin with. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately it, it, it was fairly predictable that uh, at some point Jobs and Scully would be at loggerheads, but even more than Jobs and Scully, it was Jobs and and uh, the executive staff that Scully um, uh, created. Some of them were holdovers, but uh, uh, from from the earlier iterations of Apple, but uh, uh, they were the ones who were most threatened by uh, by Jobs, and they sort of forced uh, Scully to take a stand against him. And one of the issues, one of the, the issues that kept coming up again and again was what was their consumer channel going to be? How were they going to sell to people? Jobs, even back then, wanted to open Apple stores. And, uh, you know, they thought this was crazy and not only that, but it would jeopardize their relationship with their existing, you know, distributors and so forth. So. So, uh, you know, 20 years later, we, we see, um, 30 years later, we see what's happened. It's been a huge success. But 
but they had to uh, get rid of jobs, uh, you know, have a near-death experience, and then, uh, you know, get him to build them up again from scratch in order to get there. So, so you had, you, we're talking 80s, we're talking, we're going to move into the 90s, we're doing the sort of technological mm -hmm. re revolution. By the mid 90s, we'd sort of see the emergence of the internet. Mm -hmm. So you sort of had these game changes for the future. You had processing power and and the chips that went into the right. PCs and the PC revolution. Suddenly, a PC could be in everyone's home. Right. And right. Microsoft and Apple and IBM made that possible, and even Radio Shack to some degree. Um, and then suddenly, this internet thing came along. Do you remember? the internet, the early days of the internet, and what, what was that for you, and what did you see that as? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was on the internet in the early 90s, but, but not very much. Like most people, I didn't really uh, get into it until, uh, you know, the, the, the web browsers came along, which was 95 or so. And then it was, you know, it was just an explosion, it was um, you know, it was totally fascinating. Uh, you knew it was going to, the cliche goes, change everything, but you didn't know how or when. One of the things I've learned from watching this whole thing transpire uh, is that it's all too easy to look at change, see that it's going to happen, and then get way ahead of yourself. So the classic example of this, I did several stories on this, first for Fortune and, and then for Wired, uh, was the uh, Seagram Vivendi disaster. Uh, in, the, uh, in the wake of, and then of course, uh, at the same time, the uh, Time Warner uh, AOL disaster, which was even worse. Um, uh, when Time Warner bought AOL in, uh, I think it was 2000 or so, the idea was that Time Warner was this completely analog company. It was never going to understand the internet. And they had to get these internet pioneers like Steve Case, who had founded AOL and built it into a very large company, to come in and like somehow magically make them digital. There were several flaws in this thinking. Uh, um, but from a strategic point of view, the chief one was that AOL was a, uh, a, a narrow-band company. It was a dial-up outfit. And we were about to head, you know, belatedly, but we were about to head into broadband, and AOL had nothing to provide there, nothing to offer. And uh, the uh, another thing that was very wrong strategically was that uh, Jerry Levin, who had been at that point running Time Warner for a number of years, for uh, like about uh, 15 if I remember correctly, uh, and had done a series of mergers uh, to you know, create this ever larger media behemoth, uh, including you know, buying Turner Broadcasting and CNN. Uh, uh, he, he had this organizational uh, strategy, which was 
Uh, maybe okay for an analog era, but completely wrong for the digital era, which is, uh, uh, you know, the every division of the company, the movie division, the home video division, the uh, television, uh, you know, uh, cable networks, the um, uh, the the music, um, uh, you know, the music labels, the music publishers, everything was its own profit center, and all of them were in essentially in competition with one another to make more money. And what that meant was that none of them was going to help the other because there was nothing in it for them. Um, quite the opposite, they had uh, you know a, a reverse incentive structure where. You know, the less they cooperated with their corporate siblings, the um, more likely they were to be successful. Um, you know, it took. Uh, I, I think AT and T seems finally to be getting rid of that. Uh, you know, culture and that um, organization, but it's taken a very long time to get there. So, what was the what was the the belief system was? It's not about the technology. It's about what goes into the technology and the the world of entertainment. It's about controlling as many points of entertainment as possible. That, was, that the vision? Yeah, that was part of it. I mean, uh, you know, Levin did think it was about the technology. That's why he bought, you know, AOL because they. Had well, that was a distribution. Yeah, right. That exactly. was the way to get right. Time Magazine onto the internet. Right, and and they had tried to do that. Uh, actually, of course, AOL bought Time Warner, but that's that's another issue. Um, they they had tried to do things like that, get you know Time Magazine and people and so forth onto the internet. It was just a total disaster. Uh, you know, nobody knew what they were doing. They were you know trying to come up with some kind of internet strategy. They, you know, Levin gave it to some executive who was utterly and completely clueless about it, and. Uh, you know, the the few people there who did understand it were just like holding their heads in their hand and trying to like think how many meetings do I have to go to before I can quit. Uh, and, and you know, that's, uh, um, that's what was happening there. But, you know, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, which is, I think, really important. And we didn't entirely know it at the time, most of us, but Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols, you know, uh, that was all about uh, uh, existing in an attention economy, right? So we, now it's really obvious that we have an attention economy where, where what's, um, uh, what's scarce and therefore what's valuable is people's attention because there's so much stuff coming at us, uh, you know, it's so hard to get people's attention. Um, uh, you know, Herbert Simon predicted this uh, way back in the early 70s, uh, but, um, but it took everybody else a very, very long time to come to, to, to get there. Uh, McLaren, uh, whether he thought about it in those terms or not, that was certainly what he was doing. You know, the Sex Pistols were a massively successful attention structure. You know, they were they were a, a, a very uh, you know bright and shiny object that existed very successfully to get people's attention. Another example is Andy Warhol. Uh, you know, that's exactly what he did. He would 
you know, so he would make paintings of Campbell's soup cans, and he would, uh, you know, make, uh, he would paint boxes like as if they were Brillo boxes and stack them in art galleries, and people thought this was outrageous, and, you know, why would you do such a thing? Uh, and, uh, you know, he would give very, uh, like, absurdly bland uh, uh, answers, and, you know, like he really liked Campbell's soup. That's why he did it. And, and you know, that would cause more buzz, and it was just, a, you know, a, a brilliant way to get people's attention. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, back in the 70s, you had a handful of people like this who were, who were learning how to, uh, you know, manipulate. To so hack the system. To hack the system, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, but even as late as, you know, not, forget the 90s, even as late as the, you know, 2000s and, and uh, you know, this decade, uh, you have, you know, most people in business, I think, uh, or, uh, you know, many people in business still don't understand it. And that's especially true in the advertising industry where you still have, you know, people making, uh, you know, 30-second spots and 60-second spots. and and, you know, interrupting uh, uh, TV shows as if that's the way to get people's attention, which is obviously not. But, I mean, just going back to, just going back to the AOL Time Warner thing, because mm -hmm. I think it is interesting, because it, 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 it shows that how much ego and can control and the desire for control get in the way of prediction. Right. Because... Right. If you had smart enough people who could have extrapolated the future, you would have seen that control was going to be an impossibility. That ultimately, once you drew the line and said, processing power is, is getting cheaper, it's also getting more powerful, and then you're gonna get this stuff into more people's hands, which means they're gonna have the means of production that mm -hmm. people have. Time Warner AOL is we have the means of production. Right. You don't. Right. The switch flips and suddenly everyone has the means of production, which undermines any control that you thought you had. Because right. suddenly your A and R people can't keep track of everyone and there's a kid in Brownsville, Brooklyn who's made the get best beats and your A and R guys have no idea and <laughs> the guy doesn't care anymore because he can release it and get it out there himself right doesn't need the record company right exactly I you know I interviewed um, um, Doug Morris I think it was uh, when he was the head of, um, of, of Universal Music um, this would have been back in the very early 2000s and it was just a classic approach you know it was uh, okay we have uh, these two debut albums that are about to come out uh, we're really excited about both of them. We know that one of them was going to be a huge hit and the other one is going to, uh, you know, fade into oblivion. We just don't know which one. Um, and, uh, you know, behind that was the idea that they could, you know, they could con somehow, you know, they had some mechanism of control. N not obviously uh, an exact mechanism, but but that they knew what they were doing, they would do everything possible, and they would, you know, just sort of throw it against the wall and see if it stuck. Um, and that is the added, you know, it was part of the attitude that led, I think, to the near downfall of the of the music industry. 
you know, they just weren't prepared for this idea that some kid in his bedroom could, you know, make a make a hit. It make a hit yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, you know, to 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 loop back to an earlier topic, it it gets to that idea of what that idea that Eno was talking about, which is you know essentially an algorithmic approach. You sort of uh, you know, you you know, you realize that you can't really control it, um, so you just set some parameters and see what happens. And that's, you know, I think that's kind of, uh, you know, in essence, what business has to do today. Please subscribe to Inspiring Futures on iTunes, where you can listen to other episodes with the likes of Gareth Kay, Colin Nagy. Anna Angelic, and Mark Pollard. Um, well, I think, I think, I mean, just, just, you know, as we were talking about the Van DC Groom and, and the conglomerate, the media conglomerates that existed mm-hmm. back in the day, mm-hmm. the sort of dissipated and disappearing and into irrelevance. I mean, they're still, they're still there. Yeah. But if you yeah. look at what success is today from a, from that business, it, it was is the people who recognized the the, the the sort of you know Google were organizing all the stuff that's out there. Mm-hmm. Right. We you know yes they have aspirations now of being a media company. YouTube's trying to sell, which is kind of ironic, mm-hmm. trying to sell a cable service. <laughs> right. But ultimately, Google is an organizer. Yeah. Of yeah the stuff that's out there and it's using algorithms to tell you what you should be watching. Right. But the talent, yes, there's a scale of talent and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's micro influencers and all kinds of other people, but it's basically anyone can post a YouTube video. So there's a plasticity mm-hmm. to their approach. And then you've got Facebook. Mm-hmm. Which is more or less sort of it's, yes, it's a, it's it's more intimate because it's your social network and it's not the library that Google is. It's this must connect to the people I know and and who are close to me. But they're still Facebook isn't creating any content. It's mean, merely a channel right. where these social transactions take place and content happens to be there. And then, if you want, if you're a content player and you want to be part of this, then you put your content into it. So, in a way, it's just it's really interesting. You know, uh, the people who are succeeding are the people who recognise that they have to give up. They have to embrace this idea that that um, the power of creativity was now in the hands of the masses, and that the best thing that they right. could do was organise it. But what's ironic is they've achieved so much power, they ultimately have control. <laughs> even though right. even even though the the means of production's in the hands of the people, these organizations have built up more control, you know, one could argue since the monopolistic titans of the Gilded Age. Yes, right, exactly. What it, what it really demonstrates, I think, is the power of the platform. You know, you've had this kind of, uh, you know, for, for a couple of decades now, we've had Sumner Redstone's, uh, you know, mantra. He was, of course, a, the you know, founder of Viacom, which bought CBS and Paramount and so forth. Um, that content is king, right? 
and uh, you know, then you would have certain people saying, "No, no, distribution is king, whatever." Uh, but uh, you know, the idea of the platform, which is what Google is, uh, what Facebook is, what YouTube is, uh, you know, what Twitter is, uh, you know, it, it does an end run, end run around both of them. You know, you don't have to own the pipes, you don't have to own the content. Uh, you just have a a platform uh, where anybody can put anything up, more or less, and uh, for better or worse, and quite often as we've seen for worse, uh, then uh, you know that's the um, you know that's the road to power. So it's you know it's a hands-off approach. Um, you know I think increasingly it's becoming obvious that it's a very dangerously hands-off approach, but. Uh, you know that's uh, that's kind of um, what's happened, and so you you have these mergers now of uh, you know content companies and distribution companies, uh, but what uh, like AT and T and and uh, and and Warner and uh, you know Verizon and and uh, uh, you know AOL and the various companies that Verizon has bought. Um, so and of course Comcast buying NBC Universal, uh, and uh, you know, but what's really valuable is not the uh, you know marriage of content and and distribution, the content and pipe. It's the it's having a platform on which to put all of this stuff, and um, and and all of the data that you get that comes from that, the data of you know people's preferences, pe the way people use things, the way people view things, where they, you know, where, where when they stop watching, how much they watch at a time, you know, all of the stuff that Netflix has, um, and then of course you have uh, companies like Netflix and uh, and Amazon that are kind of you know becoming content and platform both. Um, and so it's very interesting, you know, and I, I frankly can't say exactly where that's going to net out, but I remember uh, like 10, 15 years ago, it was, uh, you know, there was all of this kind of paranoia in Hollywood that, oh, at some point Google is going to buy Paramount or uh, you know, Facebook is is going to buy CBS and uh, and 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 Warner Brothers and whatnot. Um, and of course, that hasn't happened at all. You know, what has happened is that uh, you know when companies like those do get into when tech companies do get into uh, you know making content, they do it themselves. Uh, you know, they they hire people, of course, but they. Uh, you know they they're they're not trying to you know they're not out there trying to buy you know traditional Hollywood companies. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we'll see where this goes, obviously, but but I do think that the marriage of um, content and pipe is uh, I mean at, at best it's a defensive maneuver. And um, I'm not convinced that in the long run it's going to be successful unless they can, you know, use, you know, leverage that to build a platform. Which well, is the one, the one, we're obviously 
everyone's looking at is Disney. Yes, right, exactly. You know, exactly. that's a huge, now that's kind of built up right. media conglomerate the, and a host of brands and Fox and all the other things it has now. Right. And, you know, so they're trying to position themselves to succeed. But, the, I mean, the reality is there is the problem it goes back to attention mm -hmm. yeah. And, yeah and and it's only a limited amount i mean there's two there's two important variables here there's the amount of attention that individuals have to devote to your content mm -hmm. and then there's a fiscal uh, amount of fiscal resources they have to spend on that right and so those things aren't finite right either of those things aren't finite so you you no one not everyone is going is going to succeed i mean probably unless they have, I mean, they're all Wall Street quoted companies, so their all expectation is rapid growth, and they can't all rapidly grow. I mean, I, I don't right. think. Right. So you know, what would what would scare scare me? I was if, if I was in the, I mean, I think, I think Google, I mean, I think Google and Facebook have their issues, and those issues are a little bit more around. Um, content morality issues in terms of policing mm -hmm, and they've right. got so big and right. there's a story that broke on Bloomberg yesterday about YouTube yeah. um, which is pretty controversial saying they didn't really care about the bad content they were all about growth and money yeah. um, and we all, you know, we've all seen the exposés on Facebook too which is on, on similar a similar uh, theme I would say but Who's not scared of Amazon? Yeah, I yeah. mean, Amazon is 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 giving away its content, has an open checkbook, hmm. um, okay. and um, whereas Netflix is burning through cash to hmm. keep up in the content race, right? And right. Uh, they do have to answer to somebody, and they don't have an alternative source of business revenue. Right. Whereas Amazon, you know, I mean, never mind the consumer facing part of Amazon. Amazon Web Services is, you know, an enormous cash cow and, uh, uh, you know, is another kind of platform for, uh, uh, you know, for, for internet content. And, um, and it certainly gives Amazon, uh, you know, yeah, as you say, a source of cash that is not, uh, is not available to uh, either conventional media companies or you know the likes of, of Netflix. The problem that all of these companies are going to run into, I think, is that uh, you know they're all trying to sell subscription packages and so forth. And uh, you know uh, Disney has, with its purchase of Lucasfilm and now its purchase of Fox, uh, has gotten just an enormous library. And you know, lots of uh, lots of stuff in the pipeline as well. But um, you know, people people don't care whether something comes from Disney or Netflix or Amazon or Apple. You know, they just want it, and they're you know they're they're not going to be happy. I don't think with these uh, you know what we're starting to see is very siloed offerings. That was one thing that came across in the music business in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, you know, they, uh, Sony in particular, had these just absurdly disastrous attempts to set up a music platform, and 
you know, the biggest problem that they ran into, among many problems, was that they only sold Sony music. People didn't want just Sony music. People wanted all music. And it took jobs to, you know, sort of arm wrestle the music companies into submission to create a platform in the form of the iTunes store where everything was available. And, uh, you know, it's ultimately going to have to be something like that is going to have to exist uh, um, for, uh, you know, television, video, movie content as well. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, what Apple seems to be about to do is, you know, launch just another, uh, you know, uh, uh, content play that will, they'll license HBO and stuff, but they're not going to have everything. They're certainly not going to have Netflix or Amazon. Um, and, um, and that's, you know, I can't tell thinking that's the wrong way to go. Right. The interesting thing here, I think it goes back to a point you made earlier, is, um, so it's not, there are very few media companies that have created brands in the sense that I want to go see a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Motown has right. a sound, Def Jam, right. but they are counting them on one hand. Yeah, right? exactly. So it's all about the content. It's all about the show you can create. Right. So the model, you know, what's the mo- the model, which I always thought was fascinating, was HBO. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. thought their whole thing was, they were Netflix before Netflix and Amazon existed. They, right. they were going out and being that place that alternative playground, much like CBGB's was, <laughs> right, right, right back in the, in the, in the mid seventies, yeah. for these artists who were um, pushing against the conventions of rock. Mm-hmm. HBO was here's your haven, creators, go mm-hmm. make something fantastic, right. and we're going to back right. it and support right. it. Right. Now you could argue, well, are the current owners of HBO going to be <laughs> as as open minded um, to content creators um, there was a really and, and, and I was so struck by and this this interview we've done with the, the very obnoxious Jeremy Clarkson who um, is a top gear there's a, a car show that was running in the mm-hmm. UK for 20 years uh, or so and the most important property in the BBC mm-hmm. hands down and he was the most important man behind the most important property until he punched somebody <laughs> on a set and then he suddenly wasn't the most important man. Right. But interestingly, um, untainted, you know, not concerned about his reputation, Amazon swept him and his team up mm-hmm. and said, okay, let's go create the show you want to create. Mm-hmm. And I saw him do an interview actually ironically with the BBC. And he said, you know, he said, well, you don't need to work, you know, you're successful, and why do you do it? And he, he had some various comments, and he, and he said, look, you know, working for these Amazon guys is great. You know, I, I, we just, the first show, the rough cut of the first show we made, there was a gushing three-page email, this is the best stuff we've seen, blah, 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 great work. We particularly love the scene where blah, 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 and a lot of detail, a lot of congratulations. He said, in the 20 years of my time at the BBC, I never got an email like that. <laughs> and, we, and we were the top rated show on uh, the BBC. Right, right. So it's very interesting, you yeah, know, like, yeah. like this idea of, 
there's two things I think at work that are going to be important. One is the nurturing of the creator mm -hmm. and the ability to embrace them. And then, you know, the data. What you know, HBO, right. um, you know, you know, uh, famously, you, no, sorry, Netflix famously, um, you know, talks about being data driven right. and and talks about how it's used to empower the creators. You know, it's like we, you know, we don't tell them exactly what to make, but we know that people who watch this, this, and this are going to tend to like something made by David Fincher. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think that's the t you know those are the two things that are going to be key. You know, can you can you nurture these creators and can you can you use the data? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and obviously those are two interesting things because it's sort of a yin and yang there. One is a sort of like hindsight rearview mirror, look at data. The other is the creator who's sort of a visionary and his intuitive gut feel of what he or she wants to do. Yeah. Uh, so it's the marriage, of, it's going to be the marriage of those two things that are going to be key. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, companies like Disney and, you know, AT&T slash Warner evolve because, because clearly one of the things, one of the key things that they want to do is put themselves in a position where, you know, they have the data too. And when they're going through cable companies, they're never going to get, uh, uh, you know, when they're, and when they're, you know, going through, uh, you know, in, in another sense, going through Facebook or or Google or something, they're never going to get it either. But if they can create a successful, you know, if they can, you know, in this melding of distribution and content, if they can create a successful, you know, digital platform that enables you enables them to, you know, do that, then uh, that's going to be. Uh, key to success, and I, I know that with people like Jesse Redness, um, you know AT and T uh, and Warner are, you know, that's what they're out to do. That's the kind of thing that they're out to do. So, um, you know, we'll we'll see. And I, you know, Disney has been very smart in the last, uh, you know, uh, well, ever since Iger took over. I would say, um, you know, Disney has done one smart thing after another and uh, you know I, I, I would not bet against them on this um, I just think they have a uh, you know it's becoming increasingly difficult to uh, you know I mean with the proliferation of content uh, and of, of channels for content um, you know obviously they have great stuff so you know they have an incredible library so, uh, you know, and, and new stuff in the pipeline all the time. So we'll see how that, um, you know, we'll see how that develops. But um, it's interesting though, because, you know, going back to that, you know, going back to the Warhol thing mm -hmm. um, a little bit, going back to the Sex Pistols thing, um, you know, it, it, those sort of, they they grabbed the headlines. They were the stories. You right. know, and Warhol made a comment. It was big news when the McLaren did something or Sex Pistols did something outrageous. It was big news. It captured attention. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know it, what's interesting is when we looked at this idea of um, ubiquitous creation and uh, you know power in every hand, we we saw this idea of the long tail. Mm -hmm. you know, right. Right. Well, suddenly there's you know the bits, all the bits that the collective 
ends of the tail are more bigger than the thing. But mm -hmm. we've now sort of, it's not right now, is it? It's, it's sort of a hits economy. It, it's sort of like Hollywood won't make a movie for $30 million anymore because they want to make a, they want to make a movie that's going to do six hundred million dollars a box office, and it's mm -hmm. actually going to be, it's a it's a it's a Marvel, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's sort yeah. of a formula, a hit formula that people are looking for. That's not to say there's acts of randomness can't happen, mm -hmm. um, right. but you know you got you sort of have it everywhere now, and 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 the yes yes from a consumer point of view discovery yes you can you can go on netflix and find an obscure documentary about mm -hmm. mountain running in switzerland right. if you want to but the number of people who do that are this big yeah, most right. people right. you know want to see the big show yeah you know, game of thrones is game of thrones it's reached critical mass and everyone's talking about it it's a cultural phenomenon sure you know there's a couple of things going on there i think but it's it's very interesting um, Anita Elbers from Harvard Business School did this book a couple of years ago, which, which uh, you know, made the point about the hips economy, and in particular said that, uh, you know, made the made the argument that, uh, you know, what Hollywood was doing and focusing only on blockbuster films was brilliant and so forth and so on. Uh, you know, I, I take issue with that, but. What's interesting to me is the way to the, the degree to which Hollywood and television, that is the movie industry and the television industry, which are still two separate things, um, have switched places. Because for you know decades up until uh, you know about 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know movies were the prestige uh, medium. And you know that was where actors wanted to be. That was where directors and writers wanted to be, and certainly producers. Uh, but what happened was, in starting in the early 2000s, the international box office moved from being an afterthought to being a huge profit dri driver. And the problem with the international box office is that not everybody understands English. And so, um, uh, what that means is that, you know, what does translate is violence and superheroes. Comedy doesn't translate, uh, you know, drama, uh, conventional drama doesn't translate. Uh, you know, that's, you know, so, so movies have been turned into a lowest common denominator at, uh, medium. At the same time that television, which was always was the lowest common denominator, has uh, switched entirely, and now you have, uh, you know, shows like, uh, you know, most of what's on, uh, on Netflix, on AMC, uh, you know, even on HBO, um, are, you know, relatively small compared to the ratings that you know network TV used to get in the 60s and 70s when there were only you know three, uh, you know, three different networks, and. Uh, so, so, you know, television is sort of becoming the, you know, and I'm including Netflix in this, uh, is sort of becoming the, you know, the niche medium, the, the medium where you appeal to, to not small groups of people, but smaller groups of people based on, you know, not demographics, but psychographics, you know, what kind of people are these? And, and um, 
Uh, and you produce content, make content for those groups. Yeah, because, exactly. Because you know what they like and you know what they want, and right. you can sort of work out an economic model. And the data facilitates that, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You know, that's that's you know. So, so just switching back, maybe this mm -hmm. is the, the running into the to the home straight um, now. Let's just take take a step back and, and talk about um, what what happens. When, like we're now at this inflection point because I think we've we've been on this really interesting journey, which taken us through. Um, basically the technological revolution, the internet revolution, the media revolution. Mm -hmm. And we're now at this point where what I find completely fascinating and interesting. It's that everything is a big question mark. Mm -hmm. yeah. The, yeah. There was a sort of there was a sort of trajectory that, you know, that everyone, you know, back in ninety five, as you said, you opened your Netscape browser, you sort of thought, wow, this is really amazing mm -hmm. and it's only going to get better. Right. right. Now we don't know. We probably don't think it's going to get better. We probably kind of reached this point of. I mean, yeah, there will be virtual reality. There'll be other things that will change, and we don't quite know. But the, the but the pace, you know, smartphone penetration mm -hmm. is right. on the decline. You know, right. it, it's like the certain we've got to a peak point of technology, but we're now as a society or as societies, and I say Western societies, because I will caveat is not everyone mm. who are questioning this mm -hmm. is it good for our health is it good for our mental well-being mm -hmm. should we be hooked into this plugged into the matrix 24 7 or is there something else you know there was a brilliant op-ed piece in the times a week or two ago uh, uh, that that made the point that um, human attention uh, you know, and human connection, direct human, you know, human to human connection is becoming a, uh, you know, sort of a privilege of the elite, including the elite in Silicon Valley. Uh, whereas, you know, the relatively poor people, you know, including most of the middle class, is becoming increasingly, uh, you know, dependent on and interfacing increasingly with machines. Uh, you know, it, it, this this piece used as an example uh, a, a tablet on a, a on a you know like a sort of a robotic uh, um, um, structure that you know the tablet <laughs> like rolled into the hospital room and told somebody they had inoperable cancer. <laughs> you know, um, whereas. Uh, you know the people who are, uh, um, uh, you know, who can afford it, including the people who are making all this stuff, are, uh, you know, sending their kids to, you know, schools where, uh, you know, where where you aren't plugged into machines twenty four seven, where you, uh, you know, have um, uh, limits put on that, and, uh, you know, where the where the emphasis is on, you know, human to human contact. So, <coughs> excuse me. I think that I think that uh, you know that's obviously a kind of a, a reaction to where we find ourselves right now. Um, the, the question, you know, I think I, I think I think yeah, it is a reaction. <coughs> There's a, couple, mm -hmm. you know, a societal response. Um, 
it's almost, I mean, you know, and, and the fingers pointing at the giants mm -hmm. and saying, you know, you're the ones that took, took us here. Yeah. And what are you going to do about it? Right, right. Um, do you expect we'll see significant responses for those people, from those people? Well, remember, you know, I, I don't know American history well enough, but mm. my simplest knowledge is the robber barons reached such a point um, that they eventually accumulated such wealth that they decided, well, you know, I don't want to get assassinated in the streets. I better give some of this away and build a museum or two. Right. Well, it, 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 do you think we're going to see? Do they have to take similar actions? Do they have to suddenly now say, you know, we are we have listened. We're going to do something. We're going to do something good. We're going to set up. I don't know. They got the wealth that's been created and the wealth that continues to be created by Silicon Valley mm -hmm. is probably the, the the most wealth that's ever been created in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's um, no, it's it's certainly interesting. I, I'm I'm not you know holding my breath for um, uh, you know Mark Zuckerberg to do that, um, but uh, uh, others will see. I mean, you know, look at Bill Gates. For for years, people used to you know accuse or not accuse, but sort of criticize him for you know being one of the wealthiest people in the country and giving nothing to. You know, giving nothing back, and you know now he has this enormous foundation, and he and his wife are, are you know that's mainly what model, they do. Model, model global philanthropists. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, the you know the 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 real question I think is not philanthropy, but um, which is nice, but uh, you know you can have philanthropy like the Sacklers, uh, you know who <laughs> who. Uh, uh, give uh, enormous amounts of money to uh, museums and so forth while, uh, you know, reportedly, um, you know, looking for new ways to uh, cash out on the opioid crisis. And uh, <clears throat> so, so, you know, at some point there has to be, uh, if society is going to succeed, there has to be some, you know, movement to uh, you know, put a cap on this stuff um, because otherwise I think there are all too many people who are going to say, well, you know, I, I need my tax cuts, uh, you know, I don't want to spend any money on anything. And if poor people, you know, start uh, kidnapping people like me, for example, um, you know, that's just illegal and they're not supposed to do that. Uh, you know, but ultimately what they what they forget is, or what they, you know, don't even think about is that they're going to end up like, you know, certain countries in Latin America where you, you know, you have bodyguards and you have, and you live in gated communities and you're, you know, basically in fear for your life all the time. So what's the point of being rich? I don't know. Uh, that, might be a, <laughs> that might be a good place to, to close it down because right. I will just end with a, a conversation I had earlier in the week with a, with a Brazilian who's, who's now in the, U, the US who said um, a frequent conversation amongst his peers in, in Brazil in recent months has been, have you ordered your bulletproof car yet? <laughs> right. Right. So it may be uh, maybe a warning and uh, potential danger of where we're heading. Frank, thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think we covered a lot <laughs> of really interesting territory, uh, some of which is worth a lot more exploration. But uh, I really appreciate your time, and uh, thanks so much again. Thanks, Ed. Great fun.
is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.